Hello, this is Dr. Peng Xianqian, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast summarizing the October 2019 issue of the journal. You can find and subscribe to this podcast by searching for Heart Rhythm Podcast on iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please note that there is no space between the heart and the rhythm. In addition, translations of this podcast in seven other languages are available each month at the heartrhythmjournal.com website. The featured article is a multicenter prospective observational long-term follow-up study of endocardial cardiac resynchronization therapy using the Jordan procedure by Alan Watt et al. from Buenos Aires, Argentina. An author interview conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Morin, can be found at the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The Jordan procedure is a combined femoral and subclavian vein lead implantation technique. A standard pacing lead is advanced via the femoral transeptal sheath, advanced to the left ventricle, and affixed to the left ventricular endocardium. Next. The proximal end of this lead is snared via the subclavian vein and mobilized such that it exists into the generator pocket. The Jordan procedure was performed in 88 patients at 15 centers in eight countries with a follow-up of 33 months. NYHA functional class improved from 2.9 pre-implant to 1.3 during follow-up. The authors conclude that endocardial CRT using the Jordan procedure is an effective and safe technique in anticoagulated patients. This approach may be an attractive option for patients with failed coronary sinus implants or CRT non-responders. However, patients will need lifelong anticoagulation to prevent TIA or stroke. This issue of the journal is a focus issue on sudden cardiac death. The first paper is Risk Factors for Lethal Arrhythmic Events in Children and Adolescents with Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy and an Implantable Defibrillator, an International Multi-Center Study by Balaji et al. from Oregon Health Sciences University. The authors performed a retrospective data collection on 446 children with idiopathic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Risk factors for lethal arrhythmic events included the septal thickness, posterior left ventricular wall thickness, a lower left ventricular outflow gradient, and Q waves greater than 3 mm in the inferior ECG leads. However, a family history of sudden cardiac death abnormal blood pressure response to exercise, and the ventricular tachycardia on ambulatory ECG monitoring were not significant risk factors. These risk factors appear different in children compared to adults. These findings will need confirmation by prospective follow-up studies. Next up is ethnic differences in patients with Bugatta syndrome and arrhythmic events by Milman et al from the Chaim Sheba Medical Center, Israel. 
The authors performed a survey on arrhythmic events in 678 patients with Brugada syndrome. The authors report important differences between Asian and white patients with Brugada syndrome. Asian patients present almost exclusively as male adults, more often with aborted cardiac arrest and a spontaneous type 1 Brugada pattern on ECG. As high as 98% of Asian cases are males. However, they less often have a family history of sudden cardiac death and markedly lower SCN5A mutation rates than whites. The mutation rate is as low as 10% in East Asian countries and as high as 70% in the United Kingdom. The extremely high male-to-female ratio and large variation in SCN5A mutation rates are unexpected new findings that may indicate new directions of research in Brugada syndrome. Castile from St. Thomas Hospital London wrote the following article titled Pacing in Proximity to Scar During Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Increases Local Dispersion of Repolarization and susceptibility to ventricular arrhythmogenesis. Imaging data from ischemic cardiomyopathy patients undergoing CRT were used to create patient-specific LV anatomical computational models, including scar morphology. The authors found increased dispersion of repolarization in the vicinity of the scar and widening of vulnerable window when pacing in proximity to the scar. These findings provide a mechanistic explanation for VT induction in ischemic cardiomyopathy patients with CRT with lead placement proximal to scar. The authors suggest that pacing at least 3.5 cm away from scar may avoid increasing VT risk in these patients. That hypothesis will need to be tested by clinical studies. The next paper is Castor ablation versus medical therapy for treatment of ventricular tachycardia associated with structural heart disease. This review and meta-analysis article was written by Anderson et al. from Royal Melbourne Hospital, Australia. The meta-analysis of randomized clinical trial data shows that castor ablation is superior to medical therapy for predominantly post-infarct scar-related VT in terms of VT recurrence and electrical VT storm with no reduction in mortality. Real-world observational studies demonstrate significant reduction in VT recurrence and mortality. These data show that castor ablation uh, reduces VT recurrences, but the mortality benefit will need to be tested with larger trials and predetermined standardized protocols. Schemlu et al. from University of Leipzig, Germany, wrote the following paper titled Epicardial Adipose Tissue Thickness as an Independent Predictor of Ventricular Tachycardia Recurrence Following Ablation. The authors studied 61 consecutive patients. Pre-procedural cardiovascular MRI was used to estimate epicardial adipose tissue thickness. After more than a year of follow-up, about 25% of patients had VT recurrences. Epicardial adipose tissue thicknesses 
at the right and left AV grooves was significantly higher in VT recurrence group than those without VT recurrence. The epicardial adipose thickness may be a new imaging marker for risk stratification for post-ablation VT recurrence. This new finding needs to be tested in a prospective study. Next up is a review article titled Cardiac Sympathetic Denervation by uh, Four Refractory Ventricular Arrhythmias in Patients with Structural Heart Disease by Shah et al. from Johns Hopkins University. They reviewed 13 studies totaling 173 patients. Overall freedom from events ranged from 58 to 100%. They, include, they conclude that the cardiac sympathetic denervation reduced the number of ventricular arrhythmic events in patients with structural heart diseases. Major post-procedural complications were infrequent and often transient. These findings support the continued research of sympathetic denervation in ventricular arrhythmia control. The next article is by Martin Settle from the University of Reims, uh, France, titled Instance Predictors and the Clinical Impact of Electrical Storm in Patients with Less Ventricular Assist Devices. New insights from the ASSIST ICD study. Of 652 patients with LVAD, about 10% presented with electrical storm during median follow-up period of nine months. Patients experiencing electrical storm had a significantly lower one-year survival rate than did those who were free from electrical storm. Because of the poor prognosis, the authors wonder whether VT ablation in addition to drug therapy should be attempted to improve outcomes of these patients. Dong et al. from Fuwai Hospital in Beijing, China, wrote the following article titled Castor Ablation of Ventricular Arrhythmias Originating from the Junction of Pulmonary Sinus Cusp via a Non-Reversed U-Curve Approach. Of 125 consecutive patients with right ventricular outflow tract ventricular arrhythmias, 17 or 14% had an anatomical origin at the pulmonary sinus cusp. Among them, 14 out of the 17 underwent successful ablation via non-reversed U-curve after failed reversed U-curve ablation. The authors conclude that the pulmonary sinus junction is a non-rare but distinct origin of RVOT-type ventricular arrhythmias. The non-reversed U-curve approach is a more feasible alternative than the reverse U-curve approach for these arrhythmias. These techniques may be useful in difficult RVOT ablation procedures. The next paper is titled Instance of Mild Potential Induction in Subcutaneous Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Patients by Vandenbroek et al. from the University of Cologne, Germany. The authors systematically assessed 41 patients during various exercises. In nearly all patients, mild potentials were inducible. The mild potentials predominantly led to undersensing, but in up to 22% of the patients, mild potential induced oversensing occurred. However, these 
Oversensing episodes did not lead to tachycardia detection. These results suggest that myopotential induction maneuvers might be beneficial to further reduce the risk of malfunction or inadequate therapy after SICD implantation. Next up is time to therapy delivery and the effectiveness of subcutaneous implantable cardioverter defibrillator by Dinberger et al. from University of Bologna, uh, Bologna, Italy. The authors analyzed defibrillation testing in 570 patients from 53 Italian centers. The mean time to therapy exceeded 18 seconds in only 51 or 9% of patients. The authors conclude that delayed therapy during defibrillation testing occurred less frequently than previously reported and had no effect on VF conversion success. Delayed therapies seemed more common when a vector of two times gain was programmed. In spite of these findings, the authors recommend systematically performing defibrillation testing at least until the completion of the ongoing randomized trial of SICD implantation with and without defibrillation testing. The final article of the sudden death focus issue is a contemporary review titled How to Use a 12-Lead ECG to Predict the Site of Origin of Idiopathic Ventricular Arrhythmias by Enriquez et al. from Queen's University, Canada. The authors suggest a stepwise anatomical approach for localization of idiopathic ventricular arrhythmias based on sequential analysis of the most relevant ECG features. The first paper of regular part of the issue is written by Hu et al. from Fuwai Hospital, Beijing, China, titled Right Anterior Ganglionated Plexus, the primary target of cardioneural ablation. The authors studied 115 consecutive patients with vasovagal syncope who underwent cardioneural ablation. During ablation of right anterior ganglionated plexus, or RAGP, heart rate increased from 61 to 82, while there were just vagal response observed during ablation of other GPs. The heart rate effects remain during follow-up. The authors conclude that the cardioneural ablation via GP ablation in the LA effectively inhibited the recurrence of vasovagal syncope. Ablation of the RAGP increased heart rate immediately, and this effect remained during follow-up. This finding suggests that RAGP ablation may increase heart rate in patients with vasovagal syncope or bradyarrhythmias. The next paper is outcomes of his bundle pacing upgrade after long-term right ventricular pacing and or pacing-induced cardiomyopathy, insights into disease progression. His bundle pacing was attempted in patients with long-standing AV block and chronic RV pacing and or pacing-induced cardiomyopathy in need of a resynchronization therapy. His bundle pacing was successful in over 90% of patients and shortened the QRS duration, eliminated T-wave memory, and improved LV ejection fraction.
These findings indicate that electrical and structural changes induced by chronic RV pacing were consistently reversed with his bundle pacing. Montantonakis et al. from New York wrote the following article titled Conduction Patterns of Idiopathic Arrhythmias from the Endocardium and Epicardium of Outflow Traps. New Insights with Non-Invasive Electroanatomical Mapping. The authors performed non-invasive electroanatomical mapping in 37 pa uh, 31 patients. They also used the maximum deflection index to predict an epicardial site of origin versus non-epicardial origin. They found that arrhythmias arising from the outflow tracts follow distinct propagation patterns depending upon the origin. A two-step algorithm using activation timing by non-invasive electroanatomical mapping yields 100% diagnostic accuracy in predicting the site of origin. In contrast, maximum deflection index fail to differentiate between epicardial origin and non-epicardial origin. The next paper is fluctuations in premature ventricular contraction burden can impact medical assessment and management by Moody et al. from University of Kentucky. The authors analyzed 14-day ambulatory cardiac monitors from 59 patients. There was a 2.45-fold difference between the maximum 24-hour PV, uh, PVC burden and the minimum 24-hour burden in the same patients. These findings indicate that there is significant variation in 24-hour PVC burden when measured over a 14-day period among patients with PVC burden greater than 5%. This variability might impact critical clinical decisions in a significant proportion of such patients. An implication of the study is that a single 24-hour hold monitoring cannot be used to rule out the PVC-induced cardiomyopathy. Next up, is a basic science investigation titled Regulation of TRPC1 Channel by Endothelium 1 in Human Myocytes by Zhen et al. from Xiamen University, China. The authors previously reported that transient receptor potential channel 1, or TRPC1, mediates non-selective cation current that can be activated by Endothelium 1 in human myocytes. They performed further studies in human atrial myocytes with patch clamp techniques and demonstrated that TRPC1 activation by endothelium 1 is mediated by PKC through the distinct phospholipid pathways. They also showed that TRPC1 channel and endothelium 1 type A receptor are upregulated in atrial with AF. These changes may be in part responsible for atrial electrical remodeling in patients with atrial fibrillation. The next article is a contemporary review on ECG-based cardiac screening programs, legal, ethical, and logical considerations written by Orchard et al. from University of Sydney, Australia. Screening asymptomatic people with a resting ECG has been theorized to detect latent cardiovascular disease. The authors provided an in-depth look 
at various aspects of this controversial theory. The HR's 40th anniversary viewpoints was written by Dr. Frank Marcus of the University of Arizona, titled Historical Aspects of the Use of Radiofrequency Energy to Treat Arrhythmias. He describes how RF energy was first used to treat cardiac arrhythmias. This paper is definitely worth reading by all who perform RF caster ablation procedures. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Hot Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Pen Shen Chen.